morning. How are we? Everybody good this morning? Awesome, man. Great to be with you. Boy, it's a live audience here this morning. It's full this morning. Good to be with you. Great to see everybody. I love hearing your voices sing. There's something really special about that. It reminds me that even when all I have is a hallelujah to offer the Lord, I'm not the only one Um, because every one of us are going through something. And if we're not going through something, we're headed to something. And so at the end of the day, we're all in this thing together. And so it's really encouraging to hear from you and hear you sing. Question for you. You ever got to a point where you think, how in the world did I get into this? You thought that? You ever had that, that, that moment where you think, how in the world did I get into this? If only somebody would have told me what I was getting myself into. You ever been there? Yep, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was your first job. Maybe it was a relationship. Goodness, maybe it was marriage. I was standing up here right here yesterday as, we, uh, as I officiated a wedding of two, two young folks. And you know, nobody on their wedding day goes, man, nobody's, nobody's vowing for the worst, right? And, and nor should you, right? No, nor should you. You mean, it's full of optimism and excitement for all that God's going to do in and through your marriage. But, you know, you get to that moment where you think, how in the world do we get into this? You know, maybe it was, um, maybe it was a, a friendship. Maybe it was school. Maybe you, 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 know, you graduated high school, you went off to college, and you think, golly, how in the world did I end up in Lubbock, Texas? You know? You ever think about that? How in the world did we get here? And you think, gosh, if only somebody would have told me. But you know, the funny thing is, is that somebody probably did, didn't they? Right? Somebody probably said, hey, you... Maybe you should think about that. Or have you ever thought about this? (laughs) Maybe that's not the greatest decision. And yet, the reality is is that oftentimes people tell us that and we don't listen. I mean, think about when when you're growing up. How many times did mom and dad say, hey, you know, bud, that's probably not a good idea. And what did we do? We did it anyway. We did it anyway. Well, this morning... Um, I think Paul is trying to help us see, um, he's trying to give us a clear picture on what it means to really live a captive life to Christ. That's what we've been talking about all throughout the book of Colossians is Paul's desire for you and for me to live a captive life to Christ. And, And what he doesn't want is anybody to walk away from his letter to the Colossian church thinking, how in the world did I get here? If only somebody would have told me this. And so there's actually two things that I want you to see about Paul's letter. He's number one, what he, and we just kind of piggybacking off of what we talked about last week. Uh, but Paul wants to make sure that his audience has a personal relationship with Jesus. That's really, really important for you to hear. It's important for me to hear that, that Paul's desire is that you would have a personal relationship with Jesus. This is not a theory right? This is not moral rules and obligations, right? A, a, a relationship based on rules and obligations is, is not a relationship, it's tyranny, right? Um, no, Paul wants you to have a personal relationship just like you and I have with one another. It's, a, it's personal, right? Uh, but the second thing that Paul wants for us, and he wants the Colossian church to know, is that like any healthy relationship, we ought to be captivated by Jesus. We ought to be captivated by him, Right? It's kind of funny when I was studying this book and I was trying to think through, well, what are we going to call this series? The word captivated came, came to mind, right? For many different reasons. But I want you to hear that to be captivated means that 
uh, you were um, held, held attentive, right? So it's to, to be captivated means that something holds my attention. It holds my interest. And so what Paul is saying here is that, that Christ ought to hold your interest. He ought to be attractive to you. He ought to be, you ought to be attentive to him. And, and there's some trouble with that, isn't there? I want you to think about this, this busy, all distracting world that we live in. Maybe you can relate to this. You ever, you ever been sitting on your couch watching a show, somebody sitting next to you, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend, maybe a brother or sister, you're sitting there with them on the couch watching a show and then you're on your phone? Oh, I'm the only one. Right? It's because even the things that are meant to entertain us don't entertain us. They don't hold our attention. And so what Paul is saying here is that in this busy, distracting world that we live in, Christ ought to hold our attention to the degree. And here's, here's, here's the work that you and I have to do in that, right? Um, if, if Christ is going to hold our attention, it's going to take some work. It's going to take work. It's going to take some effort. In fact, what you're going to see in the text this morning as we read it in just a minute, it's going to take a choice. It's going to take a choice and not just a one-time kind of choice, but an everyday kind of choice, okay? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. So if you would stand and honor the reading of God's word this morning. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. This is Paul speaking, he says in verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Here's the reason why. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. I think it's really important that we are reminded this morning, and I keep saying this over and over and over again because I think it's just so important that it just gets nailed down into our brains, is that Paul, he's addressing Christians. His primary audience here in his letter is he's talking to Christians, right? Sure, there are unbelievers, I'm certain of that, in the Colossian church, just like there are unbelievers in the room this morning, right? People who have not yet uh, decided to to follow the Lord. so certainly those people are, are among us and they were among the Colossian church as well. But Paul's main audience here are Christians. But also he wants everybody to know, as we talked about last week, that the, the truth of the gospel. And ultimately that is that Jesus came to this earth, right? He lived a perfect life and, and he died the death that you and I deserve, he, on the third day, he, of course, he was buried, and then on the third day, he was raised to walk in newness of life. He was resurrected from the dead. And so what Paul is saying, and again, I don't want to hearken back on what we talked about last week, but it flows out of that, and it's just so important that you and I understand that this has to be personal, because that's Paul's, that's his gut. He wants it to be a personal thing. We talked about this idea of a substitute, remember, that, that Christ didn't just come to live on this earth to be a good teacher, although he was. Right? He came to be a substitute for sin. He came to be a substitute for sin, right? God has this perfect standard, right? It's not a good standard, it's a perfect standard. And he requires holistic obedience to that standard, right? And the only person who could live up to that standard is Jesus. So Jesus comes to this earth, he lives a perfect life in accordance with that holistic, perfect, not good, but perfect standard, 
right? He dies the death that you and I deserve because we failed to live up to that perfect standard so that all who would believe in him might begin a relationship with him and have hope not only in this earth, but also in the one to come. And so Paul is saying here that when we're talking about a relationship with Jesus, it's not a theory, it's not intellectual knowledge, but it's a holistic belief, personal belief. You have to understand that because if you don't get that, then everything that we're going to talk about this morning is not going to apply to you. Okay, so hear that very carefully. What we're going to talk about, what Paul is going to command of us this morning in this text is not going to apply to you unless you have first made that decision to make Christ uh, or to, to enter into a personal relationship with him. That's why he says, if then, right? He's saying, if you have made a personal relationship, began a personal relationship with him, then, right? We don't want to get those backwards. Too many people in the church have tried to live obedient to God and his word apart from a relationship with him. And that's moralism, not Christianity. Christianity begins with a personal relationship with God, right? Inside out, right? Not outside in, inside out. And once God enters into you via his spirit, he begins to transform your heart and then he moves you into obedience to him and to his word. That's how God transforms us. And so Paul says, if this is true of you, if this is true of me, then here are some instructions for you, okay? Now, I think it's probably safe to say that in all the homes that are represented here this morning, there's probably two different groups of people in your house. Okay, so there are the people who order furniture from Ikea, right? They're the people who order furniture from Ikea. They get it into the mail or they go pick it up or whatever it is that you do. Um, and, and you're the person who opens up the instructions and it's like, oh yes, instructions, right? It's okay, you can point them out. We're here to judge everybody, it's fine. Yep. Okay, yeah, so there's those people who like love instructions and it's like follow step by step. And then there's those holy people like me who's like, forget the instructions. Who needs instructions, man? I can figure this thing out, right? And so you put it together and at the end, you've got like, I don't know, five or eight screws and a couple other parts, but it's fine because it still looks nice five years later, right? It's still working, right? There's those kind of people. It's fine. We're, the Lord needs us all. The Lord needs all of us. By the way, my wife is one who loves the instructions. <laughs> so she puts together all of our furniture. It's fine. It's okay. It's okay. But the point here is that Paul is going to give us some instructions for how we are to live a captive life. And matter of fact, he's going to give us two instructions. And you'll see that here in the text. He says, if you are a Christian, again, meaning you've put your, you know, personal, you began a personal relationship with the Lord. He said, if that is true of you, then here's your instructions. Number one, he says, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here's the second bit of instructions. You ready? Paul tells us to set our minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. So he says, seek, set our minds on things that are above. Now it's important again to see a couple of things here, right? First and foremost, these are not merely instructions, okay? Certainly they're instructions. He's instructing us on how to live a captive life, but notice something, these are commands. So these aren't just suggestions. Paul's not saying, hey, if you wanna live a captive life, hey, if you wanna follow the Lord, then here's a good idea. This is not something where you can take the, 
instruction manual and set it aside and hope it works out in the end, right? He's saying, no, 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 these are commands. He is commanding you and me as Christians who have began a personal relationship with the Lord to seek out things that are above, to set our minds on things that are above. Now, if you're like me and maybe you're a little slower than most, you're probably thinking, well, what in the world does that mean? Because it's kind of ambiguous, isn't it? He says, well, what am I supposed to be seeking? You know, what am I supposed to set my mind on? Well, thankfully, Paul helps us here. To seek out something means to pursue it with intentionality. What do you think about that? Right, if I'm playing, who grew up playing hide and seek? In our house, we love hide and seek. It's fun. We have a great time. When I am seeking somebody that's hiding, I'm looking for them with intentionality. I'm not just wandering around trying to find people. I'm looking for them with intentionality. Why? Because I'm going to get them and they're not going to make it back to base. We're seeking with intentionality, Paul says. We are to seek out these things with intentionality. In addition, Paul says that we're to set our minds on things above as well. To set our minds on something means to think on it, to process on it, to chew on it. It means that we're to be occupied and striving for something in such a way that it influences our goals and our direction. It's to set our minds on it. It's to intentionally set our minds on something that Paul is going to define here in just a minute. But it goes even deeper than that. See, it's important for us to see that in the original language, again, that these are not suggestions, right? These are commands, Paul is commanding us to seek the things that are above with intentionality. He's commanding us to set our minds on things that are above. And so we have to ask the question, well, what in the world does he mean by setting our minds on things that are above? Well, in chapter three, verses one through four, here's what's happening. It kind of functions as an introductory to what we're gonna talk about over the next several weeks. So he's kind of setting us up. He's, he's, he's teeing us up for all of the things that he's going to talk about in the days ahead and the weeks ahead as we continue working through the book of Colossians. Okay, so Paul is saying uh, that we're to set our minds on these things. He says we're going to seek out these things, but then he's going to define what all of those things are in greater detail as we walk through the next couple of weeks. But to summarize, here's what I'm going to do. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul defines what we're to set our minds on. So in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, here we'll go. We'll summarize it this way. Paul says that each day we are to continually to pursue and orient our lives and our thinking on eight things. You'll see them in those verses. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, peace, and gratitude. Those are the eight things. So when Paul says that we're to set our minds on something, when we're to seek out something, what Paul is saying is that we are to set our minds on following Jesus. We're to seek out to follow Jesus, intentionally following him, so that as we do, the overflow of those things are going to be these eight things. So we seek to follow the Lord, and as we are following him, these things become the barometer as to whether or not we're actually following him or we're following something else. You with me? Does that make sense? So here's those eight things, okay? We'll say it again. A life of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, peace, and gratitude. 
Okay, so that's what we're pursuing. Now, in recent days, there's been kind of this philosophy that has kind of, well, it's sold a lot of books in Barnes and Noble and probably on Amazon too, but it's this philosophy called finding your why, the power of why. Uh, there's a modern author, his name's Simon Sinek. He's written on the power of the why, and the, the power of the why is if you know your why, that why typically motivates your action. So if you know why you're doing something, that typically motivates why you're doing it. Okay, so Paul has now said we're to set our minds and we're supposed to seek out these things. And now he tells us why, and he does it with the word for, right? For is a purpose statement. He says, here's what I want you to do. Here's the reason why I want you to do it. And you'll see it in verse three. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The reason why we are to pursue these things, number one, is because our identity has fundamentally shifted. The old self has died with Christ in his death. We've been raised to newness of life. And so now we have experienced what the Bible calls a shift in identity. It's a shift in in an identity. When we trust Christ as our substitute, we're embracing what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Here's what he says. He says, for our sake, he made him to be no sin, or he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become, hear this, the righteousness of God. In other words, in the salvation moment, we're trusting that Christ chose to die by wearing our sin so that each day we can choose to wear his righteousness. Think about that. Christ came to this earth, took on our unrighteousness, willingly, wasn't forced, willingly took on our unrighteousness so that each day you and I could wake up in his new mercy and choose to wear his righteousness. That means from that point forward, we are no longer defined by our former mistakes or our failure to live up to God's righteous standard, but Christ has performed on my behalf. So I no longer have to pretend that I'm better than I am. I, never, I, never, I don't have to perform for his favor or his love or his affection, but in Christ, I have it all. I no longer have to pretend that I'm better than I am. I no longer have to perform because in Christ, I have all of them. That's what happens in the salvation moment. When Christ becomes your substitute and you make that decision to make, to begin a personal relationship with him, he becomes your substitute so that you now stand and walk in his righteousness. And now you're defined, not as the world sees you, not even as you see yourself or the way your mom sees you or your grandparents see you or the way your kids see you, but you are defined by the way that God sees you. And he looks at you through the lens of Christ and his perfect work on the cross for you. That's the best news that you could ever hear this morning. Wow. We have experienced an identity shift and it's from this place of security, this place of security that you and I are now in the position to be able to offer to people compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, 
patience, forgiveness, peace, and gratitude. You see that? You know, I don't know if you know this, this or not, but all, of, all, all eight of these things are relational. You notice that? All eight of these things are relational. I think here it's because Paul is saying that the more secure we are in our identity in Christ, the freer we are to be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, peaceful, and grateful to other people. Right? It's that, it's that idea that our vertical relationship with God, as I'm receiving my identity from him, so I'm standing in his righteousness, I'm now positioned rightly to be able to extend God's grace, his goodness, his forgiveness, his peace to others. I become a channel, a beacon of God's grace and love to other people. You know, there's a, well, there's a lot of problems with our culture right now. Um, but, but one of them, well, I'll just ask you, I'll, I'll ask, ask it this way. Um, have you ever noticed that um, there seems to be, like, we can't have reasonable conversations anymore. Right? Like there's no charitable conversations anymore. Like there's no way for you and me to agree to disagree and walk away and still be friends. Have y'all seen that? Y'all notice that? Yeah. This means yes, this means no. <laughs> Have y'all seen that? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like nobody can agree to disagree and just walk away and be friends anymore. It's like I've got to hate you because of something that you believe or something that you said. And um, man, that's a problem. And I think that the problem goes all the way back to what we're talking about right here. It's a misplaced identity. And so here's, I think what, here's, here's what I think happens. See, rather than finding our righteousness and our identity in Christ, here's what we do. We attach our identity to a myriad of different things, whether that's a, um, maybe that's a position or an opinion. Maybe that's a cause, um, something that I believe in. Or maybe it's my career, right? Like guys, think about it this way. How often do we meet somebody, one of the very first things that we ask one another is, hey, so tell me, what do you do? We do that, don't we? Because there's, there's identity in what we do, right? But here's the problem with that. If my identity is the fact that I'm the pastor at First Baptist Belton, when I get critiqued or when somebody says something about me or somebody has an opinion, I get rocked. Why? Because you're no longer critiquing what I do, you're critiquing who I am. Because my identity is, well, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Mountain. When we put our identity in a career, when somebody questions that or has an opinion about that, they're not rejecting your career or what you do. They're rejecting who you are. And so it becomes so hard to then offer them compassion, kindness, forgiveness, patience, right? Think about Cajazas. Uh, there's many of you in the room who probably serve on a board of some kind, right? Um, we're a community church. We love our community. We serve our community. And that's because many of you are serving our community. And, and there are causes that you believe in to the core of who you are. But I have seen over the years that we make our identity a cause. And so if somebody disagrees with that cause or if somebody doesn't support that cause or you perceive them to disagree or to not support that cause, here's what happens. They're not rejecting the cause, 
they're not supporting the cause, they're not supporting you. They're not supporting me personally. And so it becomes a personal attack, right? How about an opinion, right? Maybe it's a political party. Maybe, golly, I've, I, I'm, it's called identity politics, right? Like I make my political party an identity. And so if you disagree with that, then you disagree with me. And so even though we might have brothers and sisters who have differing parties, we can't agree to disagree anymore and love one another through it, but rather we end up hating one or the other. And what Paul is saying here is that to live a life captive to Christ, it's a daily choice. It's an ongoing choice that you and I have to make to say, no, no, I have had a shift in identity. My identity is not in these things, it's in Christ. And when it's in Christ, properly where it should be, now I have the freedom to love, to care, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to be patient. And we all know those difficult people, but I can be patient with them, right? That's what being following Jesus is all about. And so we've had a shift in our identity, but number two, here's the second thing. Our focus has shifted. The reason why we pursue a life of compassion and forgiveness and kindness and peace and gratitude, the reason why we do those eight things is not only because our identity has shifted, but because also our focus has shifted. Paul writes in verse four, he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Again, notice what he says here. He says that when Christ who is your life appears, when Christ, who is your life, not a part of your life, not an aspect of your life, but when Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul is saying something really important here. He's saying that when we choose to identify ourselves with Christ, our life is no longer about us, but it's about him. Right? He becomes our life. Formally, our life is all about us. Before we made that decision, our life is all about us. It's about me. It's about my wants and my desires and uh, my life and all that I want. It's about hoarding all that I can on this earth because this is all that I got. Right? Paul says when you give your life to Christ, there's a mind shift. There's a focused shift. You know, if you've ever had kids or you've been around kids, you know that it's, it's almost like from the womb, we're wired like this, right? It's like they come out and they're like, me and mine, that's mine. I want this, I want that. It's because in Christ, there's a fundamental focus shift. You know, but it's not just kids, right? We grow up even into maturity, longing for more stuff, more attention, more affection, more success, more respect, more power, more comfort, more, 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 more. Our lives are built on wanting more. Give me, feed me, sacrifice for me. It's all about me. I've heard this so often. People leave churches because I'm not being fed. Well, if your identity and your focus is right, you ought to be being fed from him, Right? Yes, our life comes no longer about me, but it becomes about him. Because again, when I'm captivated by him and his way of life, Galatians 2.20 becomes real of us. Paul writes, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The more captivated I am by Christ 
in his way of life, the more compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, peace, and gratitude flows out of me. It's like a sponge. You ever seen a sponge? You put a sponge in the water and you pull that sponge up and you squeeze that sponge and what comes out? Soapy water. When life squeezes us, we ought to be a people that what comes out of that sponge are these eight things. You know, one author said, our lives should be lived to him, through him, for him, with him, about him. Everything should be about Jesus. Everything. But not only should our lives be about him, but Paul also says that so should our hope. In verse four, he says, when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul is saying that our hope is set on Christ and the subjects of the world become less attractive. Have you ever noticed that, that the more that you fall in love with the Lord, the less the things of the world have power over you, the less attraction you experience with the world? As you grow up into Christ and you fall more in love with who Jesus is and what he has done for you and you begin walking with him, you become, uh, you, you start looking like him and over maybe a year or two years or five years or 10 years, you look back and you go, man, I'm a different person. You ever experienced that? Where you look back and you go, man, gosh, myself five years ago was a wreck. And you think, man, I'm a lot more loving. I'm a lot more kind and patient. It's because of the hope that we have in Jesus. See, we have this hope that God is gonna begin in us today when we give our life to him. He's gonna finish that on the day of his arrival. And that one day you and I, who have placed our faith and trust, will enter into his presence and we will be made perfect. We will be complete. He will finish that good work that he started in us that day that we said yes to him. That's our hope. Our hope is that this, that this world is not all that we have to live for, but we have something far greater, far better, far more than you could ever imagine that we are awaiting for. And so we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear this world. We don't have to fear any of these things on this earth because we have a great hope. Because we have a great hope because Christ is our life. He is the tangible security that you and that I have for the hope that we have to come. There's no, there's no other worldview on this earth. There's no other philosophy. There's no power of positive thinking that can ever get you that kind of security and that kind of peace. It's only available to you in the person, in the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we love you. We come to you today. And Lord, we just ask you, God, would you, Father, would you empower in us through your spirit God, would you empower in us through your spirit, Lord? I pray that you would use us, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, that we would be a people who set our minds on you, who seek out these things. Because, Father, we know that our identity has shifted and our focus has shifted away from us and towards you. Lord, I pray that we would decrease and you would increase. And as you increase in us, Father, we would look more and more like you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.